Hello, and welcome to Prehistory, the Archaeology of the Ancient Near East, with me, Jane Gastra. We spent the last few episodes looking at the changes from the end of the pre-Pottery Neolithic and the first stage of the Pottery Neolithic across three central regions of the Near East. We saw in the Pottery Neolithic how societies across the Near East spent a couple of thousand years settling down into stable and permanent villages, mostly small villages, but some pretty massive ones. We saw how over time, people moved from hunting and gathering to growing more and more of their food at home, until by the end of the pre-Pottery Neolithic, pretty much everyone was mostly growing their own plants and raising their own animals, and only doing a bit of hunting and gathering on the side. We also saw what we called the pre-Pottery Neolithic Bee Interaction Sphere, where people living across the Levant and Mesopotamia, and even up pretty close towards the borders of central Anatolia, lived in villages of rectangular houses, usually with multiple rooms inside, made stone tools using a lot of naviform cores and blades, traded stone and shell beads back and forth over this big area, and traded obsidian down from sources in eastern Anatolia all the way across Mesopotamia and the Levant, all the way down into the middle of the southern Levant. This common movement of goodies, and the general similarity in stone tools and houses and ways of life, was the reason why we talked about such a big area of the Near East as being part of a single big interaction sphere. However, you may remember that there were also arguments against this idea of an interaction sphere. The other view was that the pre-Pottery Neolithic was actually made up of a series of smaller local groups, each with its own local take on things, such as how houses were built and laid out. This argument was that there wasn't one big, single, integrated interaction sphere, but instead a mosaic of different groups, which each only varied a little bit from one valley to the next, but which as a whole made up too big a range of fashions in daily life to really think of as one big, single group. Traditionally, we think of the end of the pre-Pottery Neolithic and the move into the 7th millennium BCE, the Ceramic Neolithic or the Pottery Neolithic or the Late Neolithic, depending on where you are, as the breakup of this big single interaction sphere into a series of distinct and different regional groups or cultures. So we basically have one big culture across the Levant and Mesopotamia that breaks up into a series of little local cultures. Or do we? The reason why I wanted to bring up the argument about the pre-Pottery Neolithic interaction sphere and whether or not it was actually a thing is that we haven't actually tended to compare societies between the pre-Pottery and Pottery Neolithics in exactly the same way. You may have noticed that there was a pretty good chunk of detail on how stone tools were made when we were talking about the pre-Pottery Neolithic, and then over the last few episodes, when we moved into the 7th millennium, there wasn't quite as much detail given to stone tools. Instead, we talked about pottery, what it looked like, what sorts of tempers went inside the clays, how it was fired, what shapes it came in, and how it was decorated. This is because from the 7th millennium onwards, pottery becomes the single most common type of artifact that we find on archaeological sites. It's also something that we can easily study. We've also known for about a hundred years that the popular styles of pottery change over time, and that they're not always the same between different regions. Obviously, we don't really have much in the way of pottery to look at before the 7th millennium, so for earlier periods, the most common type of artifact that we could study to try and figure out how cultures change across time and space were the stone tools. This means that human groups, whether we call them societies, cultures, or whatever, have been mostly studied through their stone tools in the pre-Pottery Neolithic and earlier, and then are being studied based on their pottery when we get to the 7th millennium and afterwards. This kind of begs the question of whether the breakup into smaller local cultures that we identify in the 7th millennium was actually a breakup. The argument that the pre-Pottery Neolithic interaction sphere was actually a series of smaller overlapping groups doesn't just look at the stone tools. 
It looks at house shape, burial practices, and other details of daily life that don't usually get quite as much emphasis in discussions of the pre-pottery Neolithic interaction sphere. So while we can look at the design of houses, the layout of villages, types of burials, and yes, the designs of pottery, and be pretty confident that we do have a series of regional or local cultures across the Near East in the seventh millennium, this doesn't absolutely rule out that these local traditions might have been around in the pre-pottery Neolithic, and that the way that we've been interpreting societies and identifying cultures has mostly just missed the earlier local detail. This is one of the small arguments that's currently bubbling away under the surface among archaeologists studying the Neolithic in the Near East. It basically boils down into the slightly uneasy feeling of wondering if we've missed something, and if this nice and neat theory of the pre-pottery Neolithic interaction sphere is going to end up being another of those nice and neat theories in archaeology which ultimately turn out to be wrong. The issue here is that if we were looking at the 7th millennium BCE still mostly using stone tool production as a way to identify groups of people, would we also see this mosaic of regional cultures? Or would we be talking about a 7th millennium interaction sphere, where everyone starts using pressure flaking and reduces the emphasis on the production of blades for making everything? Pressure flaking is not necessarily universal, and it wasn't always the dominant way that tools were finished off but it was seen pretty commonly to some extent across a big area of the Near East. So were naviform cores and blades. So why would we think of one time period as being part of a big interaction sphere, and then this time period as being full of a bunch of regionally distinct cultures? Is it really all down to the fact that we're now looking at pottery, and that it's easier to see differences when we look at pottery? Or did we have a patchy landscape of many different but very similar cultures across the Levant and Mesopotamia, and some slightly more different ones in Anatolia during the later part of the pre-pottery Neolithic, and it just wasn't as obvious since we didn't have the handy pottery to look at. Or is this breakup into smaller and more regionally distinct cultures really a thing that happens during this early part of the pottery Neolithic? Well, this is the question. The issue here is that cultures generally are not something that can be distinguished from one another based on only one trait. We don't only use one trait now to distinguish between cultural groups, so it would be silly to assume that people did this in the past. Instead, cultures are usually not necessarily something that has solid boundaries. They blended the edges between different cultural groups, and in addition are made up of the distributions of a whole bunch of different traits at once, only some of which may be unique to that one culture. Instead, it's the particular combination of traits that makes up a culture but we don't necessarily know all of the variables that were important traits for cultures in the past. And we don't really even necessarily know which of the things that we are able to study now, like pottery, stone tools, houses, jewelry, figurines, burials, etc., were things that were important to people when it came to showing off cultural identity. We think that they were, as they're similar over an area and during a particular point in time, but the fun of a discipline where we've had so many neat and tidy theories in the past that inevitably turned out to be completely wrong is that we now check everything repeatedly because no one wants to be the one who came up with the next neat and tidy theory that turns out to be wrong. So instead, we talk about pottery distributions and the social importance of displaying these fancy decorations on the pots and other highbrow academic ways of talking about fashion. But we do this with a caveat in there somewhere that, of course, it could also be the case that this was just a fashion trend, and that these pots were cultural as expressions of a fashion trend, and not because anyone attached any particular importance to the pots or their designs when it came to what they thought about themselves and the society that they lived in. 
So anyway, apart from the fact that we can't necessarily say which traits that we can identify as being distinct between cultures were actually important to the people themselves in terms of how they understood their group identity, we also have to deal with the fact that even when we can come up with a distinct set of traits which we can see as delineating a culture, not all of the sites across the extent of this culture will have all of these traits. This was the case in the pre-pottery Neolithic, and it's the case here in the 7th millennium, and it's going to be the case going forward here for quite a while. The past really is another country, and we have to do our best to figure out what life was like and what was important to people and what they thought of themselves and their place in the world, or at least in the world as they knew it. What all of this means is that we need to be aware when we're talking about the Yarmoukian or the Proto-Halaf or the Proto-Hasuna is that these most probably were not really sharp regional or temporal boundaries. People didn't all get up one morning and decide to smash all of their old pots and instead make and use only pots with zigzag decorations and long necks. These don't all change at once. And similarly, they're not all the same across the same region and completely different between regions. We didn't have people in one valley decide that they were going to use a particular type of pots and use projectile points in a particular shape, and that all of their houses were going to be built in a certain way out of the same materials, and that everyone in the next valley over was going to agree to make different pots and different projectile points in different houses, arranged in a different way, and built of different materials. No, we have a lot of overlap, and a lot of bits that wander from one region to the other, like imported pottery, or a big range of variation in the way that people built their houses in the southern Levant. So this does look like a patchy regional pattern of local changes and practices forming and becoming local cultures over the 7th millennium. Of course, this is what it looks like now, also because we have the pottery. Just to be clear, I'm not saying that the interaction sphere for the pre-pottery Neolithic is wrong. It's still widely accepted as a way that we look at the pre-pottery Neolithic, and that the breakup of this sphere is a big change that we recognize as happening as we move into the 7th millennium. What I'm saying is that there are some arguments still happening about the degree of actual interaction and similarity, and whether we need to think of the interaction sphere as more of an interaction network between several similar cultures rather than one big one. This may not be a big argument, but it has been around a bit for the last couple of decades, and it's likely to be around for a while yet. We like to argue, and enough of our nice and tidy theories from the past have later turned out to be wrong, so someone will always keep checking to make sure that what we know happened really is what happened, and that we haven't missed something. If you've worked on one area for a few decades, then it can be really embarrassing to discover that you were wrong. But it's a lot more embarrassing to ignore an area of research just because it might show that you were wrong. Because, well, we also gossip, and you don't want to be that person. So while our understanding of the nature of the post-pre-pottery Neolithic breakup gets some argument, there are a few things that happen in the 7th millennium that we're pretty much all agreed upon. The spread of pottery in daily life is one of these. Now, we know that there are a couple of examples of pottery turning up on sites in different parts of the Near East more than a thousand years before it becomes common here in the 7th millennium. This begs the question of why we have such a long gap between the very earliest examples of pottery and when people started to use it all over in their day-to-day -day lives. The short answer to this is that we don't really know. Obviously, there are a lot of arguments, but at the moment, that's pretty much what they are. We know that people were settled down in villages long before pottery becomes a thing, and that they were farming and raising domesticated animals also for several centuries before pottery becomes a thing. 
It might have to do with a change in how food was cooked or in how people ate, maybe wanting to show off fancy dishes, particularly in the early days of the 7th millennium when pottery was more rare on sites, or it might just be fashion. It's unlikely to be because of some big change in technology that meant that people only just figured out that putting clay into the fireplace made it hard and durable. We've seen lime plaster on buildings throughout the pre-pottery Neolithic, and the type of hot fires that you need to fire pottery were already around, because you need a really hot fire to turn limestone into quicklime for making lime plaster. Plus, many of these early types of pottery were not fired to very high temperatures, so would not have needed much more than a hot fireplace rather than a special kiln or a blast furnace or some other new type of firing technology. Chances are, at least some people had a general idea that you could burn dried clay vessels to make them more durable, and we have examples of dried clay storage bins in houses from the pre-pottery Neolithic, as well as the few finds of actual pottery that turn up. So what we're kind of left with is the idea that having pottery either started to become useful for some reason, or that it was all just a fashion, and several groups worked out how to make it at about the same time so that they could have these fashionable new containers. What seems to be common is that pottery is turning up at more or less the same time across each of the areas of the Near East that we've talked about, give or take a couple hundred years, and that the earliest pottery that turns up tends to be fairly simple in shape. We also see what looks like trade and fancy goodies still continuing across at least some areas of the Near East in the 7th millennium, when we look at things like the movement of obsidian or also the movement of pottery. Pottery also starts off reasonably rare, and then changes to become a more common part of daily life. Sometimes this change is pretty quick, and sometimes it takes a few hundred years before pottery moves from a fancy and exotic item to a common, everyday thing. Over time, the range of shapes, and probably functions, for pottery also grows. Of course, pottery may be the big thing that we see coming in during the 7th millennium, but if we think about how societies change, then it's not actually the most significant thing that we see happening. Don't get me wrong, pottery is a big part of how we look at the archaeological record. Before we had the ability to directly date sites with techniques like radiocarbon dating, then pottery styles were the main way that we were able to work out which sites came from about the same time period and which were older or younger. This is still one of the main ways that we figure out which time period a site or a particular layer of a site comes from, by looking at the types of pottery that we find and comparing it to the sorts of shapes and styles of pottery that we see in the area from different time periods. However, while pottery is a big deal for us archaeologists, there is something else that we see happening across the Near East in the 7th millennium that's actually a lot more important for the way that societies change going on in time. As we've seen across many different regions, there is a trend in the later parts of the Neolithic towards smaller groups of houses around their own private communal areas, or towards more storage within the level of the individual houses, and things like the growth of stamp seals and tokens. All of these have been taken as indications that life was changing over the very end of the pre-pottery Neolithic and throughout the 7th millennium, from the production of food and the control of what was produced being at the level of the entire village, or of big social groups within the village in the pre-pottery Neolithic, changing to the level of the single family, or the extended family, or other very small social groups over the course of the pottery Neolithic. This may seem like not that big of a deal, but it's surprisingly important if we think about all of the possible implications for this in the way that human communities functioned. If you think of hunter-gatherer groups, then they are, by definition, getting food from around the landscape. Plants growing on a hillside or an animal wandering through a valley don't really belong to any one person. 
They're just sort of there for anyone to catch or collect. So if a group of people go out and collect wild barley, who does it belong to? You could say that each person could claim the actual grains of barley that they themselves collected, but that gets a bit hard when people can't really eat raw barley grains. We need to smash them or grind them up or cook them or ferment them a bit or some combination of these. Technically, each person could do all of these things for themselves, but then each person would need all the grinding stones, cooking implements, and stone vessels for fermentation to process their own bit of barley. This is a lot more work than pooling the barley together and everyone taking turns grinding or cooking it. Besides, what happens if a few people didn't go out barley collecting because they were off hunting gazelle? Hunting animals isn't always successful, and collecting wild plants is almost always successful because they can't run away. But you don't want to end up in a situation where no one bothers to go out hunting because they're worried about going to bed hungry if they're not successful. Hunter-gatherers generally share out the plants that are collected and the animals hunted between everyone. After all, wild plants and animals don't really belong to anyone, and it avoids arguments and unhappy stomachs if food gets shared with everyone, since everyone was doing some sort of food collection anyway. If we think of this view of plants and animals as being something that belongs to the whole group, or rather, the whole village, then what about when people start to domesticate plants and animals? Well, it takes more than one person to plant and harvest a field of barley, or to look after a herd of goats, and it definitely takes more than one person to do both of these, as you really don't want to bring a whole herd of goats with you when you're harvesting a field of barley. At least, not if you expect to still have some barley at the end rather than having it end up inside the goats. And if everyone in the village is used to going out and collecting food together, and if everyone is doing something towards collecting food, either planting fields, looking after the goats, collecting wild nuts, or hunting gazelle, then there's no reason to stop pooling all of the food together for everyone. Of course, after more than a thousand years of planting crops and looking after the goats, ideas can change. Let's say that you and your family put a lot of work into planting barley, and you spend a lot of time looking after the goats. Maybe there's another family in the village which is a bit less useful. Maybe when it's their turn to watch the goats, they just wander off and leave them to get eaten by wolves. Or maybe when they help with planting the barley, they just toss some seeds on the ground at random and that part of the field never grows properly. Maybe you start to wonder why you're putting in so much effort into growing these crops and looking after these animals just to watch them go into the mouth of someone who doesn't really put in their share of work. Well, you could get together and tell them to either do their share or go find another village to live in, but maybe they have some cousins who are hard workers and refuse to get behind kicking them out. If everyone was still hunting and gathering, then you and your family could just leave and go find another village to live in where there aren't any lazy families that don't help out. But you and your family have just planted a big field of barley and you don't want to walk away from it. So maybe your family gets together and decides that they did all of the work to get that field of barley planted, and then did all of the work to harvest it, and they don't want to share it with the family that didn't do their share of the work. This leads to an argument, and the village splits down the middle, with one half planting and harvesting fields on one side of the village, and the other half planting and harvesting fields on the other side, and the herd of goats gets divided in half, and each faction looks after their own share. So now you need two buildings to store the grain harvest, and two areas to pen the goats at night so that they don't get away. And suddenly, even if you still have half the village planting crops and herding animals together, you have the concept of food belonging to us and food belonging to them. And then, after a couple of generations, if you have another argument, there is a precedent to divide the herds and fields all over again, until eventually you can only rely on sharing the farming chores with the people that you are closest to, 
your family, or maybe the families of your siblings or cousins. And you don't want to keep all of the animals together or all of the barley in one storehouse because it's your barley, and you don't want some other family sneaking away with your food. So you build your houses near one another, make your own granary and your own area for penning the goats at night, and you have all of the food grown and raised by your family kept where you can keep an eye on it because that food is mine. And in a way, this is kind of how the Neolithic progresses. We have whole villages of mostly identical houses with one big communal structure set aside for storing food or doing things together. And then over time, we have more than one of these structures, suggesting that different parts of the village are doing things together, but not together with those people in the rest of the village. And then over time, we get small groups of a few houses set together with their own storage and outside activity areas. Because when you can just walk outside and collect food growing in the wild, it's hard to argue that it belongs to just one person. But if you're having to put the effort into growing your own food, then it's easier to move from my dog, my spear, my spouse, to also having my food, my herd of animals, and my field. And suddenly, we have private property. And you might not want to mix your own food into a communal store and communal area for grinding grain, or into communal cooking areas. So maybe it shouldn't be a surprise that we see evidence of village life moving from the level of the whole village down to the level of the family across the Near East. After all, they were all farming, and they were all human. And we humans can be very kind and giving, but we can also be peevish about having to do all of the work and let someone else get all of the benefit. And if we take this idea of mine a bit farther, then what might we expect if one family is very hardworking and very lucky and very good at getting good harvests of barley and at keeping all of their goats alive and breeding happily over many generations? They would probably have more reliable stores of food. And if another family is less hardworking or less lucky, then they might lose a bunch of goats to wolves or have a bad harvest and have to go and ask the more fortunate family for help. Of course, the more fortunate family might just be nice and just give them food to see them through until the next harvest. And of course, everyone in the village would know that they were the good family who helped others through the bad times. Or they might agree to help if the less fortunate family did something for them like agreeing to harvest a field of barley for them when it was time to bring in the harvest, or to help them build their new house. And this means that we have some people with more supplies, and that others have to ask for help. If this continues over several generations, it's easy to see how we might end up with one family having more supplies, bigger or better houses, or a higher standing in the village than everyone else. And thus, we've moved from the beginnings of the idea of private property, of mine, to the start of differences in social status all because of something being mine. So while pottery gets a lot of press in the 7th millennium, we really can't ignore the growth of the idea of private property. As we move forward in time, there will be a lot of developments in societies across the Near East which really could not have happened without people first deciding that property belonged to individual families or individual people. After all, without the idea that physical things belong to individual people, how would we have different people having different social status? Basically, we can think of there being two different types of ways in which someone can be distinguished, can have a higher social status, amongst everyone in their village. They can either be very good at something, like being very good at building houses, or making pots, or chipping stone tools, or settling arguments between people. They might also be very good at healing the sick, or at talking to the ancestors, or the gods. We've seen burials of shamans dating back for a while, and we know that it was possible for someone to achieve a special status within their society during their lifetime. The point here is that this was a status that they achieved, that they earned by being recognized for their skills at something. 
This is something that belongs to them personally and doesn't necessarily make them a better person or a more powerful person than anyone else in the village. So that's achieve status, something that one person builds up during their life by being good at something. The other kind of status is what we call ascribed, or status that you get born with. This kind of status belongs to people purely because of who they are and who their parents are. Their parents, or at least one parent, are recognized as being special for some reason, and this special status is passed down to their children, who are recognized as being special even when they're young, because of who they are rather than only because of what they've done. When we move from people being special or important because of what they've achieved in life to people being special or important because of their family, then we get social classes, rulers, and society becoming stratified, such as into upper and lower classes, or elites and commoners. Private property is one of the things that allows this sort of social change to happen. You can imagine how this sort of thing might come about. You may have one family that are really good farmers or really good at raising animals. This might mean that they have the biggest harvest every year and the biggest herd of animals. So they get to be richer than the other families in the village. Then if someone has a bad harvest or loses their livestock in an accident or to disease, then they have to go and ask the rich family for food to get them through to the next harvest or for some animals to regrow their herd. Then they owe the rich family, meaning that they might be asked to support them in some argument within the village, or they might have to agree to help harvest some of the family's fields in addition to their own. Or they might have to agree to give up part of their field to the rich family as payment. If this happens enough over time, then you can end up with one family that basically has a big chunk of the village, or even the whole village, in debt to them, or at least aware that they could potentially be in debt to this family if anything should happen. If this happens, then the children from this family, the ones who are going to inherit these big herds of livestock or these now big fields for growing crops, might get treated differently within the village. After all, this family has been rich for generations and have had at least part of the village in their debt at some time or another. Maybe people would be worried about making the family angry, or maybe they would think that the whole family must be special because they've had such good luck for several generations. So we end up with children that are considered special or more powerful or just richer because of the family that they come from. If one of these children dies young, because we're very much in the days without modern medicine and this would have happened pretty regularly, then the family might have decided to give them a rich burial in accordance with their status as members of this special family. This would not only allow the family to mourn for the fancy and entitled life which this child would have had if it lived, but it would also show off the wealth and prestige of the family to the entire village. And thus, over a few generations, the village has gotten an elite family which has some degree of authority over the rest of the village, even for the children of this family. Without private property, it wouldn't matter if one family was very good at herding livestock or growing crops. The harvest and the animals would have belonged to everyone, and would have gone to everyone. Of course, there might have been less incentive for people to work hard at having the most productive fields and raising the most animals if all that they got was community pride and a pat on the head from their neighbors. Obviously, everyone wants to make sure that they eat for the next few months, but they might not feel the need to work harder than the rest of the village if it doesn't get them anything. So we kind of have two things that come from the idea of private property the incentive to work harder to get more property and the increased status that you can get from having more than your neighbors. This doesn't mean that people trying to increase their status and get some sort of control over others is linked to the idea of private property. That is a thing that comes from being human, 
And even in hunter-gatherer societies with no private property and no differences in status, the whole community actually has to work pretty hard to make sure that no one person gets a big head and tries to boss everyone around. But having private property and the capacity to have riches and reserves of resources means that this very human trait to want to be special can essentially eventually get around whatever social pressure might be in place to keep everyone equal. This idea of private property, and that some people or some families might have a bit more than others, also brings us to the idea of showing off. Now, showing off is also a human trait. It's something that happens in all societies, and not just those where people have their own private property. But if you're the richest family in the village, then you might want to have nicer things than your neighbors, so that people remember all the time that you are the richest family in the village, and that that makes you special. Yes, they might know that you will be the one they have to ask for help if anything goes wrong, but you know that you're special because of all of your grain stores and livestock, so you should have special things, and not just the same stuff as everyone else. So maybe someone in the village makes pottery occasionally, and they're pretty good at it, so the other families in the village trade them a sack of barley for their nice pots rather than having to make do with the less nice pots that they get when they make their own pottery. This is where we start to get specialists. It doesn't mean that one family does no farming and spends all of their time making pots for the village, but it might mean that someone who's particularly skilled does a little bit of pottery making every few months and trades the pots around the village. Maybe someone from a village went to visit a family or friends in another village and saw a family there with a new type of pottery covered in fancy painted designs. They might mention this to the person in the village who's good at making pots, and they get an idea. They might go and visit the other village and ask where the painted pots came from and how they were made. Or maybe they just have a go and try to make their own version based on the description. Now, this painted pottery does look pretty fancy, and it's a whole new idea. So maybe they show it to the rich family in the village and tell them that this is a brand new style being used in the rich family in the other village, and that they can have these fancy painted pots in exchange for a mere two sacks of barley. The rich family has the reserves, and now they have the newest and fanciest dinner service in the whole village. Of course, this is assuming that there is only one family in the village who can afford to pay extra to get fancy pottery. And we do love to keep up with our neighbors. And so another family in the village decides that they are also willing to pay extra to get a set of fancy painted pottery. So they have a chat with the neighbor who occasionally makes pottery and gets them to make another set of fancy painted pottery. Or maybe they go straight into the village downriver and trade some barley or a sheep for a set of fancy painted imported pottery. And now everyone in the village who can afford it wants painted pottery. Or maybe they can't afford it, but they can still make their own version at home. It might not look quite as flashy, but it's still covered in painted designs. And, of course, someone from a village on the other side comes to visit, and sees this fancy painted pottery, and has an idea. So now another village starts to use painted pottery but maybe they sometimes use a slightly different design, and people bring their own versions of painted pots as a gift when they go visiting to another village and take home one of the pots made there as a gift. And we quickly end up with fancy painted pottery spreading out all over a big area, with subtle changes in the designs from one area to the next as people make their own designs and trade these with their friends. This isn't just the case for painted pottery, and changes for fashion pottery generally probably spread in pretty much the same way. This could have happened over a pretty big area in only a few years, or a single generation. From the point of view of archaeologists, it might look like these changes spread up all over at the same time. 
since we generally have difficulty getting a particular site or a particular layer of a site dated more precisely than about one generation, say 20 years. Fashions in something like pottery could change really slowly, with only tiny changes in shape at any one time. So what we see looks to us like pretty much the same pottery for decades or for a few centuries. Or it can change more dramatically and look like a sudden major change, like the appearance of fancy painting on pots. We know this, but we do have to keep reminding ourselves of this all the time, because from our point of view, it can look like we have a wide range of styles for things when in fact they could each only be a different fashion trend that happened every few years. One example of this could be the wide range of house shapes that we see in the Yarmoukian in the southern Levant. It could be that all of these houses were built at about the same time, and that the choice of the shape of a house was just random and down to the whims of the individual family. Or it could be that house shape was a fashion that changed every few years, or every generation. Perhaps each time that a house was built, it was done in whatever shape was in vogue at the time. Or maybe only some families wanted to be fashionable, and were quietly mocked by their neighbors for trying to be fancy and modern and having a house with one round wall. Who knows? From our point of view, it's hard to tell unless each set of houses were built at least partly on top of one another, and we can work out some idea of how often houses were built. Of course, if people are only living in one village for a few generations and building houses once per generation, then it can be hard to compare the fashion for house design from one village to the next. So this brings us to the end of the seventh millennium, at least for Anatolia, the Levant and Mesopotamia. Pottery happens and private property happens. While these two new things aren't necessarily linked, they're both pretty big for how we understand the past during and after the seventh millennium. One, because it helps us to organize people and how they interacted in time and space, and the other because it set the foundations for a lot of the big changes to societies that we're going to see later on. Of course, the Near East isn't just limited to these three big regions. But these are the regions that have had a lot of research into what life was like in the seventh millennium, and they're also the ones where the timing of what happens is pretty similar. I would like to say that next time we will leave the 7th millennium behind and voyage on farther into the last stage of the Neolithic. But this won't be entirely the case. There is a nice big region that I haven't talked about for a while, and which has its own really interesting late Neolithic developments to talk about, even if these don't line up exactly over the 7th millennium. We haven't been back to Cyprus since I talked about it in episode 15. So I thought that next time we might head back and take a look at the end of the pre-Pottery Neolithic and the developments of the late Neolithic here on the lovely island in the eastern Mediterranean, surrounded by the bluest of blue seas and peacefully cut off from the rest of the world. Or not. Well, it is lovely, and the seas are really blue, but, um... Thank you for listening to the Prehistory Podcast. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach me at prehistorypodcast at gmail.com. If you'd like to see any examples of the stone tools, pottery, or evidence for private property that I've talked about, then you can find these on the website at prehistorypodcast.com, along with a list of related books and articles for each episode. If you've enjoyed this episode, please give the podcast a rating and a review on your platform of choice to help others find us. And come back and join us next time, when we'll go back and have a look at what has been happening on Cyprus.